Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome back, Cardio Nerds. Dan Ambender here. Join us for a great discussion about key ACC 2021 prevention highlights featuring the Adaptable and Strength Trials. First, Amit Goyal and Council Representative Dr. Mahmoud Arifai discuss the implications of the Adaptable trial with Dr. Gina Lundberg. This is followed by a terrific discussion between Dr. Tommy Das, Dr. Rick Ferraro, and Council Representative Dr. Anum Saeed as they discuss the results of the Strength Trial secondary analysis with Dr. Stephen Nissen. Team, there is a lot of nuance to discuss when it comes to triglycerides and omega-3 fatty acids, and what is presented in this episode is just the tip of the iceberg and part of a broader discussion. So keep your eyes and ears tuned for a future in-depth, multi-part series to tease out more about these important topics in cardiovascular prevention. This episode is produced in collaboration with the American College of Cardiology Prevention of Cardiovascular Disease Council, with mentorship from the Council's Chair, Dr. Eugene Yang, who provides a special message at the end of the episode. And if you're enjoying the episode or show, please consider supporting the show by rating or reviewing us on your favorite podcast platform. And think of somebody who would enjoy the podcast and spread the Cardio Nerds word. If they are new to podcasting, just hop on their phone and show them how to subscribe. Finally, this podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. Relevant disclosures can be found in the episode show notes. And all Cardio Nerds content is planned, produced, and reviewed by Cardio Nerds. Hey everyone, let's begin our ACC 2021 prevention coverage with a discussion about Adaptable, an important study with an innovative design. I am so thrilled to welcome Dr. Mahmoud Al-Rafai. Mahmoud is currently a second-year cardiology fellow at Baylor College of Medicine. He is from Beirut, Lebanon, where he completed his medical school training. Mahmoud came to the U.S., where he obtained a master's in public health, followed by two years of research, and then went on to do residency in internal medicine in Wichita, Kansas. Mahmoud is passionate about academic cardiology with a focus on preventive cardiology and cardiac imaging. In addition, Mahmoud is one of the fit leadership representatives for the ACC prevention section and is how he wound up with us today. Welcome, Mahmoud. So excited to have you with us. All right. Thanks, Amit. I'm happy to be here. Today is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Gina Price Lundberg. Dr. Lundberg is an Associate Professor of Medicine at Emory University School of Medicine. She currently serves as the Clinical Director of the Emory Women's Heart Center and is a leader in women's cardiovascular care. Dr. Lundberg specializes in preventive cardiology, women with heart disease, and lipid disorders. Dr. Lundberg has two adult children. Her son just recently got married, so please join me in congratulating her and the family. Yay! Congrats! Thank you, Mahmoud, and thank you, Amit, for having me today. It's our pleasure, Dr. Lundberg. Well, let's get right to it. Mahmoud, can you give us an overview of the adaptable trial? Sure. So as you all know, ACC and HA doesn't really provide any definitive recommendations on aspirin dosage for patients with established atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. And there's actually a lot of substantial variation in aspirin dosing in the U.S. Uh, with prior studies comparing different aspirin doses showing mixed results. Adaptable was a randomized, open-label pragmatic trial comparing two doses of aspirin, 325 versus 81, 
for the secondary prevention of cardiovascular disease. The trial employed a range of innovative and low-cost methods to simplify the identification, recruitment, and follow-up of patients. So, for example, eligible patients were identified within the National Patient-Centered Clinical Research Network, PCORI-NET. Informed consent was obtained via a web portal, which also provided the aspirin regimen the patient was assigned to. And all trial visits were conducted virtually or by telephone. And all outcomes were ascertained remotely and without adjudication. The primary outcome was a composite of death from any cause, hospitalization for myocardial infarction, or hospitalization for stroke. Primary safety outcome was hospitalization for major bleeding. So the trial enrolled a total of 15,076 patients who were followed for a median of 26.2 months. The primary outcome occurred in 7.2% in the 81 milligram group versus 7.5% in the 325 milligram group with a hazard ratio of 1.02, which was not significant since the 95% confidence interval crossed one. Hospitalization for major bleeding occurred in 0.5% in the 81 milligram group versus 0.6% in the 325 milligram group. And hazard ratio, again, was not significant. Patients assigned to the 325 milligram dose had a higher incidence of dose switching uh, than those assigned to the 81 milligram dose. And they had a fewer median days of exposure to the assigned dose. Fantastic, Mahmoud. Thank you. Dr. Lundberg, do you have anything else to add to Mahmoud's description of the study? Well, I think it's incredibly innovative how they designed this study. It's a study that could have happened during COVID from start to finish. They reached out to patients via electronic medical records and contacted patients. The patients bought their own over-the-counter aspirin, so there was no distribution of drugs. That also made it an open-label test, but that's pretty much replicating what you would do in the office. Patients were followed up via email and there was no large cost involved. 40 centers were involved, and the enrollment and the follow-up is just tremendous. Some patients were followed as long as four years. So I think it shows the future of clinical research in a very practical way, low cost, and had 40 sites literally all over. So I think this is the way we're going to see more trials in the future. What I was disappointed to see was, you know, it's basically a white male study. So it was almost 90% whites and only 30% women. And that's not how America is right now. So we have to have a better way to enroll different geographic areas, different racial and ethnicities. And we definitely need 50% women in these trials going forward. That's great. Thank you, Dr. Lundberg. And, you know, I really appreciate your discussion of how this is really an innovative study design. It's a practical study design. It's probably more cost effective to do it this way. But I, I wonder, do you, do you see any weaknesses in the way they designed the study? And I guess maybe I'll pose two things out there. One is just in adjudicating events, right? They they cataloged events remotely without adjudication. And I know for the clinical trials that we look at, you know, we have the investigator reported events, but then we also have adjudicated events. And the second part is, is do, do you think that, you know, like the way they, they invited patients, I think sort of indiscriminately to participate in the study, do you think that a more proactive approach would have helped in recruiting a more or a less biased sample with regards to sex and uh, race? Well, you're totally depending on who's going to respond to your email. And so you have to have good internet connection. You have to have a laptop. And so that already is going to pick a certain level of education, 
social economic status and just accessibility, right? So you don't maybe have as many rural people because maybe they don't have a good internet. So there are some limitations that way. Thanks, Dr. Lindbergh. So a great study design, pragmatic, practical, cost-effective, but potentially with some unforeseen biases. Dr. Lundberg, what do you make of the lack of difference in bleeding? I mean, I would have thought that patients on 325 milligram aspirin would tend to bleed more, but there was really no difference in bleeding. Would you have expected differences in bleeding rates between the two aspirin groups? Yes, Mahmoud, I really would have. I've kind of racked my brains to think why we didn't see that in this trial, because it feels like in our clinical experience, we do. A patient has a GI bleed on full strength aspirin. We move them down to 81 milligram thinking we're reducing the risk. And the study has just shown us we're not. So I was surprised. Uh, I thought lower dose would be safer. When you look at the actual numbers, there were more GI bleeds in the 81 milligram group. So not statistically different, but that was quite interesting. I think it's good to know, though, that when you put a patient on 325, you don't have to worry about a higher bleeding risk. But then you stop and wonder, well, then why would I ever use 325 if 81 was just as effective? So it's kind of like this two-sided coin. On one side, 325 is not higher risk, but it's also not more beneficial. So maybe we should just stick to 81. It's a great point. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. What do you make of all the crossover from the higher dose uh, to the low dose aspirin? Would this have influenced the results of the trial? What does it say about our takeaways? Well, there was more crossover. And again, I wonder if that isn't the physician-directed bias of you hear the patients having some excessive bruising or bleeding, so you tell them to cut back. I am constantly hearing from my female patients that, you know, I'm all bruised like a banana. I can't stand the bruising. Women don't like bruised legs and arms, especially in the summer. It's not very attractive, right? So they're always asking me if they can cut back. So I think there's some bias among patients and among physicians, but I think this information is now going to help change that bias to actually have evidence-based data saying, no, 81's not less bleeding risk. It's just the same. So Dr. Lundberg, as you know, before this trial, there were really mixed results on uh, previous studies comparing the two doses of aspirin. This is a pragmatic study done in real world setting. Modern day population, again, saw no difference in outcomes between two aspirin doses. So do you think the next uh, guidelines would make any definitive recommendations about aspirin dosing and secondary prevention? Or do you think they would just still leave it up to the clinician and the patient to make that decision? Well, given that this is such brand new information, kind of earth-shaking information, uh, I expect the ACC and the AHA to be a little more conservative and maybe say that you can pick one or the other based on patient shared decision-making or clinical signs and symptoms in their preference. I think the good news is whichever one you pick, if this data is correct, you've covered your patient. Uh, I think it might take a few more studies, particularly with a broader audience of not just white males, before they really want to change the recommendation. So Dr. Lundberg, what's the bottom line from Adaptable? I've got a busy clinic tomorrow with many patients, so help me out. What do I do for them? Well, I would think in the people that you're, you know, feel are a little riskier for bleeding, maybe you're elderly, frailer patients, you're going to go with the 81 milligrams, but you can be confident that it's as strong as the 325. I still think in patients under 50, we may feel more comfortable with 325 when it's appropriate. Of course, this doesn't affect dual antiplatelet therapy or primary prevention. Um, So again, it's for aspirin alone. In the meantime, 
I'm using full strength aspirin is in low risk patients who've had paroxysmal atrial fibrillation. So it'll be interesting to see if this carries over to that data. This looked at outcomes of myocardial infarction and stroke, but didn't include arrhythmia such as AFib. I want to thank everyone, especially Dr. Lundberg for joining and for your insightful comments today. I learned a lot and I hope that you all would find this episode to be very beneficial as much as I did. So next, please tune in to hear my colleague at the ACC prevention section, Dr. Anam Said, with a dive deeper into the strength trial with Dr. Steve Nissen. Thanks, Dr. Lundberg. It was a pleasure to meet you. Thanks, guys. It was fun. Hey, Cardio Nerds. It's Tommy Dawes and Rick Ferraro, back with our ACC 2021 prevention coverage. You just heard from Dr. Mahmoud Al-Rafi discussing the results of Adaptable with Dr. Gina Lundberg. Now we get to discuss a fascinating secondary analysis from the strength trial with the trial's principal investigator, Dr. Steve Nissen, and the ACC Prevention Section Leadership Council's fellow representation, Dr. Anam Said. Anam is a third-year general cardiology fellow finishing fellowship in just a couple days from the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, where she will continue as a postdoctoral research fellow and clinical instructor. She's from Karachi, Pakistan, where she completed her medical training. Anam completed her internal medicine training from Memorial Hospital at Rhode Island Hospital at Brown University, and then a clinical lipidology atherosclerosis fellowship at the Baylor College of Medicine before starting her general cardiology training. Anam is currently serving as the ACC's Prevention Leadership Council and as the senior co-chair of the AHA FIT Council. She is passionate about preventative cardiology, and her research focuses on lipid and atherosclerosis in prevention of cardiovascular disease and dementia. Welcome, Anam. Thanks, Rick and Tommy. It is my distinct pleasure to be here and also introduce our guest, Dr. Stephen Nissen, the immediate past chairman of the Department of Cardiovascular Medicine at the Cleveland Clinic and a professor of medicine at the Lantler College of Medicine. In 2006-2007, he has also distinctly served as the president of the American College of Cardiology. Among his many notable contributions to the scientific literature are over 450 journal articles and 60 book chapters and counting. Needless to say, Dr. Nissen is a giant in cardiovascular disease medicine, and his innumerable contributions have had an immeasurable impact on how we practice medicine today and how we think about research. Specific to this discussion, Dr. Nissen was the principal investigator for the strength trial, and his group just presented a secondary analysis at the American College of Cardiology Scientific Sessions 2021, which is the association between achieved omega-3 fatty acid levels and major adverse cardiovascular outcomes in patients with high cardiovascular risk. Dr. Nissen, welcome. It is a pleasure to have you on here. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to our discussion. Dr. Nissen, we're just so honored to have you here on the CardioNerds podcast. And we'd like to start actually with the question we ask everyone that we have on, and that's, how did you become interested in cardiovascular prevention? You know, it was an evolution. Uh, I didn't start out that way, but in 1985, I began working with a small company on developing intravascular ultrasound. And at the time we started that work, it was a real dream because Ultrasound transducers were very large, like they are for a typical transthoracic echo machine. We wanted to make it small enough to go on the end of a catheter. And it took us about five years, but in 1990, we began making images of the coronaries. And what I saw was, to me, very shocking. What I saw was in somebody with minimal coronary disease, if you, if you pulled the intravascular ultrasound catheter along the vessel, 
there were plaques everywhere. And what I really realized was that the disease is ubiquitous. And I began to work on studies, the first of which we published in 2003 was a reversal trial on how could we address this enormous amount of atherosclerosis that was burdening our patients and causing so much morbidity and mortality. And so I kind of moved from being focused on other things to being focused on prevention. Yeah, that's really incredible, Dr. Nissen. What, what a story there. And, and again, just such a privilege to have you with us today. We actually had a blast discussing the strength trial at our very first Cardio Nerds Twitter Journal Club a few months ago with input from Crow primary author, Dr. Stephen Nichols. Anam, to get us started, would you please give an overview of the strength trial and what was originally presented at AHA 2020? Sure, Rick. You know, the topic of whether omega-3 fatty acids, like the penta acid, which is EPA, and docosahexanoic acid, which is DHA, whether the reduced cardiovascular risk has long been debated, as you know. You know, several previous trials, include, particularly the Vital and the Ascent trials, showed no significant cardiovascular benefit of low-dose omega-3 fatty acid supplements, approximately one gram per daily, consisting of a mixture of EPA and DHA. However, it was reduced, you know, just setting up the background of it, to reduce a trial which showed cardiovascular benefit with a much higher dose of purified EPA, icosapent ethyl, at four gram daily among a group of high-risk patients when compared with mineral oil as a placebo group. So the goal of the residual risk in the EPANOVA and high cardiovascular risk patients with hypertriglyceridemia, or what we know as a STRAND trial, was to evaluate whether carboxylic acid formulation of EPA and DHA compared with placebo used as corn oil among patients with dyslipidemia and high cardiovascular risk would have any prevention benefits. The STRAND trial randomized 13,078 individuals to either 4 grams of omega-3 carboxylic acid, EPA plus DHA, or corn oil placebo. Major inclusion criteria were established after sclerotic cardiovascular disease, or ASCVD, age 40 years and over, with diabetes mellitus plus at least one additional risk factor, or other high-risk primary prevention patients 50 years and older for men and 60 years and older for women. Moreover, including participants were required to have elevated triglycerides, which were measured at between 180 to 500 milligrams per deciliter. Over a median follow-up period of approximately 3.4 years, there was no significant difference in the primary endpoint between the treatment of the T-bar. There was an increase in new-onset atrial fibrillation, which was statistically significant, among those individuals who were on the omega-3 fatty acid treatment. The overall event rates of atrial fibrillation were also very low, at 2.2% versus 1.3% in the intervention and the placebo arm, respectively. The trial itself was, as you know, terminated early, given the low likelihood of showing a benefit in the primary outcome. I hope that helps to setting up the background of the original strength trial. Thanks, Anna, for that overview. And I think it's really important to get that background before we jump into this debate. And, you know, it leads us to our next thing we wanted to discuss. And we wanted to congratulate Dr. Nissen and his colleagues on presenting a really enlightening secondary analysis of strength at ACC 2021. This was simultaneously published in JAMA, and the study was entitled Association Between Achieved Omega-3 Fatty Acid Levels and Major Adverse Cardiovascular Outcomes in Patients with High Cardiovascular Risk. And what it does is it addresses one of the primary hypotheses for why the results of Reduce-It and Strength differ so drastically. So as we already mentioned, Reduce-It used a purified EPA product, while Strength used a mixture of EPA and DHA. Some people have theorized that the mixed EPA-DHA product failed to achieve high enough EPA levels to lead to a cardiovascular benefit, or that the presence of DHA counteracted any potential beneficial effects of EPA. 
To address this concern, the secondary analysis of strength divided the study population into three tertiles based on plasma, EPA, and DHA levels. While patients in the upper tertile of EPA achieved a higher median plasma EPA level than those seen to reduce it, no significant cardiovascular benefit was seen in these patients when compared against the corn oil placebo. Furthermore, in the top tertile of plasma DHA levels, those patients did not experience increased rates of harm compared to patients receiving a corn oil placebo. In short, the analysis concludes that patients in the strength trial didn't have any correlation between high plasma EPA or DHA levels in cardiovascular outcomes. So Dr. Nissen, as the PI of this very interesting analysis, are there any other main points we should take away from this study? Well, I think you mentioned it. And of course, we made the point in our main manuscript to describe this as a study using corn oil as a placebo. And I have to give you some background here that isn't in the manuscript. When we were designing the strength trial, we had a half-day meeting of the executive committee, which consisted of some really outstanding experts in lipidology. And the discussion was about what to use as the placebo. We knew that olive oil was probably a positive control. And we had very strong evidence that mineral oil was a negative control. So we used corn oil. We had very good data from going back, you know, decades that suggested that corn oil had a neutral effect on lipids and inflammatory markers. So, you know, what we really were trying to do in strength is have a a neutral comparator to be able to look at the effects of this mixed EPA DHA product. There is one more point I want to make about the drug we use, this carboxylic acid derivative is it's better absorbed than the ester formulations that are used in all of the other studies that have been done. And its absorption is independent of food. So actually, even though we used a mixture of EPA and DHA, the levels of EPA in the main strength trial were only modestly lower than that achieved in reducing. Nonetheless, there was this critique that said, you know, Maybe you just didn't get enough EPA into patients. And that's why we did this analysis by tertiles. I hope we can come back to the issue of comparators because it is a fundamental issue of clinical trials that you can only interpret a clinical trial in the context of a neutral placebo. If the placebo is not neutral, it is very difficult to interpret a trial. Yeah, such incredible points, Dr. Nissen. And and getting that context is really helpful for me as a listener, and I'm sure for everyone else as well. You know, I'd love to start things off a little bit here with a perennial question when discussing the role of N3 fatty acid treatment in cardiovascular disease. Given that the inclusion criteria for reduce it and strength were similar, what do you think leads to the difference in the results? Well, my view, and I've been very outspoken about this and taken a lot of criticism for it, is that the only explanation that is left if you take a look at the at the data from our secondary analysis of EPA and DHA levels, is that there may be a difference in comparators. And I've shown slides at various meetings, including at the ACC meeting, that show these differences. And they're rather profound. Essentially, the corn oil was neutral. If you look at the effect over time on LDL cholesterol, CRP, non-HDL, everything is non-significant. No changes reach significance. However, if you look at the reducive trial using the acosapentethyl, 
there is a whopping 32% increase in high-sensitivity CRP. Now, I would point out that those differences are in the same ballpark as the reductions that were seen in the Cantos trial uh, that Paul Ritker did that showed a benefit of an anti-inflammatory drug, canukinumab. In addition, there was a 10 or 11% increase in LDL in the Reduce It trial in the mineral oil group. So LDL goes up with mineral oil. Now, I think you all know about the rule of six. And the rule of six is that if you double or half the dose of a statin, you get about a 6% difference in LDL cholesterol. And so the difference in mineral oil was about two dose titrations of statin. Let me put that in context. That's comparable to the difference between 10 and 40 milligrams of atorvastatin. And so for reasons that are increasingly becoming clear, mineral oil, when given chronically, has an adverse effect. Now, how it does that, we have some actually some preliminary data soon to be published on how mineral oil actually exerts its toxicity but it raises LDL equivalent to about two dose titrations of statin, and it raises HSCRP by a huge amount. It also raised ApoB. I mean, it really was quite evident that it's not a neutral placebo. Now, when Reduce It was reviewed by the FDA, FDA concluded that these changes were insufficient to fully explain the benefits observed with icosopentethyl. But keep in mind that uh, no one has looked at all of the other inflammatory markers. You know, what happens to serum amyloid A? Uh, You know, what happens to uh, IL-6? And so there's a lot we don't know about what mineral oil does. If you look just at the CRP and LDL, well, maybe it's hard to completely explain the benefits, but there's a lot we don't know. And the concern here is that reduce it is a false positive study. In order to clarify that, we needed to know that in strength, that people who got really big increases in EPA also didn't show a benefit. And that's why we did that secondary analysis, which I think does help us to understand that at least in in the strength trial with a neutral placebo, there's just no effect of these omega-3 fatty acids. Now, let me say one more thing. Every other trial other than reduce it, you know, vital, ascend, you know, all of them going back decades has shown no benefit of giving omega-3 fatty acids, albeit in, in somewhat lower doses. But I would argue that if omega-3 fatty acids are beneficial These studies, which were as large as 25,000 patients, should have shown something, and they just didn't show anything. And so I really do think that omega-3 fatty acids do not have a favorable effect on cardiovascular outcomes. Wow. Thank you for that exceptional explanation, and absolutely so much to unpack here. So really, two hypotheses on these differences in findings, that blood EPA levels were not high enough in this trend trial to achieve benefit or the DHA component of therapy and strength led to negative effects of overcoming the benefits of EPA, which were largely disproven by your own recent work of the strength. Dr. Nissen, just for our listeners, and I know you alluded to this a little bit before, 
how does the secondary analysis add to the strength versus reduce its results? You have alluded to this, but if you could just give us a little brief you know, overview on that, that would be great. Be happy to. And, uh, you know, there is a question that always, there's always questions in clinical trials. You know, you you do a study and it's actually important for for, you know, fellows in training to understand that the main manuscript is typically you know, pretty lean. You try not to pack everything into it because it becomes virtually unreadable. So, you know, we had this result. The results were so terribly different between strength and reduce it that we needed to do more to really try to understand it better. So I sat down with our lead statistician, Kathy Wolski, who's really been a partner with of mine for so many years. And we prospectively designed the secondary analysis. And that's another point I would like to make. This was not a fishing expedition. I read a lot of secondary manuscripts, you know, that are published, you know, after main studies where, you know, the authors, I often as a reviewer will will write to the, you know, in my review, well, did you look at quartiles and quintiles and, you know, everything else? And sure enough, when I asked the question, I get an honest answer that said, yeah, we looked at it by quartiles and quintiles and tertiles. And what you then realize, of course, is that the authors then took the results that looked the absolute best, and that's what they published. We didn't do that here. We thought that tertiles would give us a large enough sample size in each of the tertiles to have narrow confidence intervals around the results. Uh, that also would enable us that we we hoped we didn't actually know until we did the study that the top tertile would have blood levels at least in the same ballpark, if not higher than the EPA levels that were seen in the strength trial. And in fact, that's exactly what happened. We got really, really large increases in levels in the EPA group. The other thing that was interesting about this secondary analysis is that although we used a mixture of EPA and DHA, in the main study, there was only a 39% increase in DHA for reasons that are not entirely clear. We mostly got EPA levels to increase in these patients. So they went up 268% in the pooled analysis of all the patients that got the active drug here. So it was not surprising then that when we looked at the top tertile, we would have levels that were actually higher than the levels achieved in the reduce it trial. So I think the important point here is that you know we didn't, you know, throw spaghetti at the wall and see what sticks. We sat down and we said prospectively, what do we need to do to understand it? And I was prepared for either result. I was prepared that we might have looked at the top tertile and have seen a 15 or 20% reduction in major adverse cardiovascular events. But actually, in the top tertile of EPA, the hazard ratio was 0.98. And I want to point out what the confidence intervals were. The 95% confidence intervals were 0.83 to 1.16. So those are really pretty narrow confidence intervals. Because of the size of strength, 
each of these tertiles had enough patients with enough events to have very narrow confidence intervals. Similarly, when we looked at the top tertile of EPA, the hazard ratio was 1.02, and the confidence intervals went from 0.86 to 1.20. And so, you know, it really does exclude a level of benefit such as was seen in Reduce It, and it excludes a rather modest level of harm. So the confidence intervals being tight here gives us good answers. It is important to understand in clinical trials the problem of type 2 error. As I think many of you know, type 2 error is when your sample size is too small and you have a result, but the confidence intervals are very, very wide. And you can't draw very firm conclusions when the confidence intervals are wide. That didn't happen here. So this was prospectively designed. The confidence intervals are narrow. The levels achieved were really quite substantial in the highest tertiles. And so we do think it's a pretty strong result. Dr. Nissen, thank you for that explanation. And it's just so amazing to hear a a trialist like yourselves talk about study design, why certain things were done and how they were done. And you know, we take a lot of trials as, as dogma. I think going back and thinking about how it's put together and how that relates to what we can clinically say is really important. So I really appreciate you having that discussion there. One question I was going to ask to slightly shift our gears a bit here is, you know, after Reduce It was published, another follow-up study um, called Evaporate was published from the same group looking at plaque volumes and plaque compositions in the patients who were on high-dose EPA and showing a reduction in plaque volume and low attenuation plaque in particular. You know, and some people point to this as like, oh, this is a possible mechanistic explanation for why high-dose EPA leads to the cardiovascular benefit outside of the reduction in triglycerides. And I would just be interested to get your thoughts on, on Evaporate and how the results of Evaporate are reconciled against strength and vice versa. Well, unfortunately, Evaporate is not a, a useful trial. And, uh, you know, we commented about this on multiple occasions, by the way, as have other clinical trialists. I'm going to be very blunt, as I always am. The, the, the study was not properly uh, reviewed. Let me give you just a few of the examples of, the, of why we think evaporate. When you look at it closely, it evaporates. At baseline, there was twice as much plaque in the EPA group as there was in the mineral oil group. And so that's one point. Why is that important? Because at the end of the study, there was the same amount of plaque in the EPA group and in the mineral oil group. And when you see this, this represents something well known in the scientific literature known as regression to the mean. If you've got a bunch of random errors and you get all this extra plaque in the active treatment group, but then everything is the same at the end, that's regression to the mean. And the second thing that really raised a lot of eyebrows is that the mineral oil group in Evaporate had a 107% increase in plaque volume over the duration of the trial. Now, for those of you that have read our studies, and we've done 12 of them, Uh, all of them published in tier one journals like the New England Journal and JAMA. 
studying using intravascular ultrasound plaque volume changes. The largest change in plaque volume that we've seen in those studies using powerful therapies like 40 milligrams of uh, rosuvastatin, the largest changes we've seen are about 1%. And so when we saw 107% change in plaque in evaporate, the truth be told here, evaporate is a nonsense study. It's, it's, I'm going to, I don't say this very often, but I'm going to say it here. It's junk science and it cannot be used for any legitimate purpose. It's meaningless. And the changes that we're seeing were biologically implausible and the differences in baseline plaque volume, which was not properly adjusted in the analysis, uh, results in a apparent appearance of a benefit that cannot be relied upon. We've known for two decades that you have to adjust for baseline plaque volume in order to get a reliable answer. And so, you know, the bottom line is evaporate just can't be used as evidence for benefit. Yeah, Dr. Nissen, that's uh, really powerful points there and learning points, I think, for all of us and, and really appreciate your perspective on that point. You know, understandably, much remains to be known about the biochemical properties of N3 fatty acids and the mechanisms by which they achieve potential benefit. One consistency between both the strength trial and reduce it is that both purified EPA product and mixed EPA DHA reduce triglyceride levels, despite the stark difference in cardiovascular outcomes between the trials. This has led many to point to broad pleiotropic effects of N3 fatty acids as the mechanism of their potential benefit. However, given the results of this secondary analysis of the strength trial, can we ascribe any of these differences to pleiotropic effects at all of EPA versus DHA? So you have to have been around a long time to understand why those arguments have a lot of problems. You know, if you go back to the early days of statin research, people talked and talked and talked about pleiotropic effects of statins. Whenever people don't understand something, they invoke this magical mystery. Well, maybe there are these magical effects of the drug that we don't understand. I actually debated somebody about the Reducive trial, and the title of my, my talk was, Do You Believe in Magic? So we had all this discussion about pleiotropic effect for statins. And then along comes the CTTC meta-analysis. And what they show is, that every statin in virtually every dose lines up along a regression line where you have LDL on one axis and outcome on the other axis, that you can explain the benefits of statins purely on the basis of their LDL effects. You really can't make the case that there's a pleiotropic effect. Now along comes these omega-3 fatty acids. You know, they fail trial after trial. Then a trial succeeds and people says, well, maybe our drug has these, these magical pleiotropic effects that nobody understands. And so my challenge to the advocates is, where's the beef? You know, show me the, show me the evidence. Show me something that the drugs do that we know is beneficial and that we can understand. And show me how they do that. And I just haven't seen such results. And so, you know, 
I don't know that they have any beneficial effects. I really think that that if you look at every other trial but reduce it, omega-3 fatty acids are neutral. And I think that the answer is they are probably neutral and that reduce it again is a false positive study that makes us you know, think that it's doing something favorable, but it really isn't. And I don't know that we can, that anybody has shown us any pleiotropic effects. Now, let me make one more point. In neither reduce it nor strength, was there any relationship between the extent of triglyceride reduction and the benefit? So as a biomarker for benefit, triglycerides were not related to outcomes. You know, I'll shift the gears a little bit, just going back to our your secondary analysis presented at the ACC 2021. You know, an interesting and significant finding was the difference between atrial fibrillation. You know, the incidence of atrial fibrillation between the groups with 2.2% on the omega-3 arm, experiencing new-onset atrial fibrillation versus 1.3 for those receiving the coronal placebo here. The atrial fibrillation incidence and omega-3 seems to be a relatively consistent signal. So what do you make of this incidence of atrial fibrillation with the omega-3 fatty acid treatment itself? Well, I'll tell you, it is really something that we don't understand. And I will tell you that there are now three trials that show a pretty striking increase in the risk of atrial fibrillation. It was seen in Reduce It, it was seen in Strength, and it was seen in in Onemi, yet another recent omega-3 trial. In all cases, the increase was somewhere between 50 and 100%. Now, as you point out, the incidence is low, but it is not trivial. If you have an absolute difference of about 1%, that means the number needed to harm is about 100. And, you know, atrial fibrillation has a lot of consequences for patients. How it does this, no one has really been able to show us the mechanism. But when you see it in three trials, it's not a fluke. It's there and reduce it, it's there in Onemi, and it's there in strength. And The reason that we emphasized it is that if you conclude that there's no benefit of omega-3 fatty acids, then what you're left with are the harms. And the harms are significant. People have a lot of GI issues. You know, diarrhea is reasonably common. Dyspepsia is common. If you study these drugs very carefully, they do have gastrointestinal adverse effects. And they have this problem of an increase in atrial fibrillation. And so if you don't have benefit, then you have to pay attention to the harms. Now, if you have a 25% reduction in morbidity mortality, you know, you can overlook the atrial fibrillation and the GI adverse effects. But if they really are neutral, then then it deserves more attention. And I certainly would have a lot of difficulty using these drugs even to treat very high triglycerides if i if i have a patient that has a history of atrial fibrillation yeah that's really helpful context for all of us and as you mentioned something that's come up a lot frequently so getting your opinion on that is is really helpful dr ness and appreciate all your time another commonly cited trial in this space is the jealous trial published in 2007 so some time ago But similar to reduce it, found that purified EPA product in addition to statin led to a reduction in cardiovascular events when compared to statin alone. 
Additionally, and you touched on this a little bit, the Evaporate trial spoke a bit on mechanisms here with icosapenethyl exhibiting an increase in fibrous plaque and decrease in intraplaque hemorrhage and necrosis. We're hoping to ask then a little bit about what do you think make the broader differences seen in these trials of purified EPA, which have largely been positive, versus the majority of the DHA EPA trials? And again, you've mentioned this a little bit, but kind of getting your overall thoughts, I think, would be helpful. Sure. Well, I've talked about evaporate. And again, I, I, we, you know, evaporate, which was quite small, by the way, and had these biologically implausible changes in plaque volumes that have just never been seen before in any, with any therapy, even very powerful therapies. Uh, you know, so I, I really can't take evaporate very seriously. Now, Jealous, interestingly enough, was a older trial. And a lot of people don't really understand the design. But the patients in Jealous had a average LDL at the beginning of the trial of 180 milligrams per deciliter, 180 milligrams per deciliter. And they were treated with either 5 milligrams of simvastatin or 10 milligrams of pravastatin. And so these were patients who essentially had untreated severe hyperlipidemia. One of the most important principles of contemporary clinical trial practice is that you have to give effective background therapy to patients in order to understand whether a new therapy provides incremental benefits. Now, um, I'm going to pull up here, just just take a minute here, and pull up the LDL levels in at baseline in our trial. But my recollection is they were something like 75 milligrams per deciliter. And they were. Yeah. So what we're talking about then is we were looking at the effects of omega-3 fatty acids on patients that are on proper contemporary background therapy. And this has come up historically over and over again. I'll give you another example that goes back a few years. There was a big study done with Ramipril. And the study really shocked everybody because it showed a broad reduction in major adverse cardiovascular effects with Ramipril. And then along came follow-on trials. And these follow-on trials, and there were two or three of them, recognized that in the, the HOPE trial, which was the trial that used Ramipril, there was essentially virtually no background therapy. Most of the patients weren't even on aspirin. Uh, they weren't on statins. They had high baseline you know, LDL levels. And along came the PEACE trial done very nicely by Mark Pfeffer, who, by the way, was the chair of the DMC in strength. And it showed absolutely no effect of ACE inhibitors in a broad range of cardiovascular patients. And so history teaches us that you can't interpret a trial that's not on reasonable contemporary background therapy. And that's exactly what happened with Jealous. As a consequence, Jealous never appears in the guidelines as evidence of benefit. It never went to the FDA 
for a label because everybody recognized that if you brought that trial forward and tried to convince people that it showed a benefit, that it would not have credibility given the fact that the background therapy was essentially non-existent. Thanks, Dr. Nissen. I think what will be very important to our listeners and just to putting this all together, what is your message to clinicians who are on the front lines and you know now having purified EPA itself on the market and utilizing this or, or not for their high-risk patients? Well, it's a tough call because, you know, look, as you point out, you know, there is some evidence. I mean, you know, reduce it is not no evidence. It has real issues with the comparator. At the very least, it probably dramatically overestimates any benefit. Whether there's any benefit at all, I think clinicians have to make their own mind up about. Now, one favorable thing about the purified EPA product is that the courts have ruled that it no longer has patent protection, that it really was not a patentable compound. And so now there are two generics that have been introduced to the market. And what you're going to see is a dramatic fall in the prices so that the decision at least is easier when you have a drug which is inexpensive that's available. Within a year or two, I expect that the acosopent ethyl product will be relatively low in cost. However, you never want to give a therapy to patients without compelling evidence of benefit. My own view, and I've said this publicly, is that someone needs to do a trial where icosopentethyl is compared to a neutral comparator. Corn oil would be my choice. There are certainly other comparators that you could potentially use, but not mineral oil. Mineral oil, by the way, is essentially liquefied paraffin. And, you know, it's never been studied in long-term studies to look at its biological effects. But I want to see a casopentethyl pitted up against something that we have very good reason to believe is a neutral comparator. Now, I have to tell you something that comes up in the, in the interpretation of these trials that's actually, if you think about it, almost laughable. People have said, well, the problem with strength is that corn oil is actually beneficial and that, you know, you are comparing to a beneficial comparator. And so my, my answer to them is, if that's really true, then let's just give everybody corn oil, you know, let them cook with corn oil and let's forget about giving them drugs. But that's another story entirely. So that doesn't work as an, as an argument. I have not prescribed icosopentethyl to any patients. I do have patients with very high triglycerides whose levels are above 500 where there is a high risk of pancreatitis. And I've given them generic omega-3 ethyl esters, which is the, you know, kind of the, the current inexpensive generic form of the drug that used to be known by the brand name Lovesa. And you do get, you know, a 20% or so lowering, sometimes more, uh, sometimes 30 or 40% in the very high triglyceride patients. If you want to choose to give icosopentethyl to people whose 
whose triglycerides are above 500, I think there's reasonably good evidence that it lowers triglycerides and that lowering triglycerides probably, probably reduces the incidence of pancreatitis, although even that's not been studied in randomized controlled trials. What I want to see is a proper study of icosapentethyl against a neutral comparator in a well-treated contemporary population, not people with LDLs of 180. I want to see something where, you know, if they want to, if someone wants to do an atherosclerosis trial, you know, don't do it with CT, which has a very low resolution. That was what was done with evaporate. You know, do it with intravascular ultrasound. You know, do do a proper, well-powered atherosclerosis trial. I'll predict that if those studies are done and done properly against neutral comparators, that they will show a neutral result. But we won't know until somebody does it. And in the meantime, given the risk of atrial fibrillation, I can't pick up the pen, or in this case, the computer, and write prescriptions for icosapentethyl in good conscience. Wow. Well, Dr. Nissen, thank you so much for your time here. Uh, just a tremendous number of points, a, a lot of commentary. And I'm sure after listening to this episode, others will have thoughts as well and, and would love to speak more in the future. You know, you've been such a leader in so many div- domains of cardiovascular medicine. And this discussion is really just a small slice of all that you've done and conducted. Do you have any general advice for us newly minted cardiology fellows going forward? Yeah. Well, first of all, I hope many of you you know, go into academic medicine. I have never regretted for a minute. You know, you can go out and hang your shingle on your door and start seeing patients or join a big group and, you know, and practice clinical medicine. And there's great pleasure in practicing clinical medicine. I still attend in the CCU and see patients in the clinic. But the diversity of what's offered by being in an academic role where I get to teach fellows, which is one of the great pleasures of my life, and mentor them in their research. And I get to do research on new therapies and to be able to opine on how medicine is is practiced. So I have a mixture of all three of those elements of teaching, of research, and of clinical practice. And that diversity, you know, while you won't make quite as much money, you'll do fine in an academic practice. And I hope many of you listening will think about that and consider what a great opportunity it is. I'm on September 1st going to turn 73 years of age. And I think I'm going to be doing this when I'm 83 years of age. You know, Gene Brunwald is 93 years of age. So you can have a great long career in academic medicine. You can continue to to offer teaching opportunities and research into your 70s and even 80s. Tony Fauci's 80 years old plus. And I hope some of you will have those long careers in research and in teaching at academic medical centers. Thank you so much, Dr. Nissen, for that closer. And you know, as we are in this time of transition right now in late June, early July, as we move into new roles, it's just so inspiring to hear someone who's had the career you have, who still has such a passion for science, such a passion for cardiology, and such a passion for teaching and patient care. So I just really want to thank you again for your time. And, you know, what I'm taking away from this conversation, in addition to everything we've talked about and the nuts and bolts of omega-3 fatty acids and the trial design, is that, you know, science is dynamic and that we, it's important to be critical of science and it's important to take science in context of 
where we are in contemporary care and just really appreciate the whole conversation. I really want to thank as well Anam for drafting our discussion questions for this conversation, as well as Dr. Eugene Yang, who's the chair of the ACC prevention section. Thank you, of course, Dr. Nissen, for such a fascinating conversation. Just can't say enough of how much we appreciate your time. And thank you so much for having me. And I enjoyed it very much. And I hope everybody that uh, listens uh, also enjoys it. Hello, everyone. My name is Eugene Yang, and I'm a professor of medicine and cardiologist at the University of Washington and the chair of the ACC prevention section. I want to thank all of you for participating in today's podcast, which is a collaboration between CardioNerds and the ACC Prevention Section, uh, which was intended to highlight the important prevention studies that were presented at ACT20. In particular, I want to thank Drs. Lundberg and Nissen for their time and their insightful discussions about the adaptable and strength late-breaking clinical trials that were just presented two months ago. I think I learned a lot myself about the studies, in particular from Adaptable. I think this type of novel trial design that is low cost and really intended to reflect clinical practice is perhaps a glimpse into the future of how some clinical trials will be designed. Dr. Nissen certainly shared his insights into the strength trial and the reasons behind choosing the placebo, as well as controversies about DHA and EPA, and certainly look forward to additional discussions in the future around these controversies with omega-3 fatty acids. I want to thank our moderators from the FIT group who are co-chairs, Anam and Mahmood, for the Prevention Council, as well as from CardioNerds, both Tommy and Rick. And then finally, I really want to thank the CardioNerds co-founders, Amit and Dan, for giving us the opportunity to produce this podcast in collaboration. I really do look forward to additional collaborations with CardioNerds and the Prevention section. And certainly, if you have ideas, please contact me directly. My email is eyang01 at uw.edu or visit the Prevention Council homepage for more information at acc.org. Again, thank all of you for this really outstanding podcast and to both the speakers as well as the moderators for participating in this really wonderful session. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you.